This episode of 42 to Doomsday is brought to you by our Matron account where we chat about Doctor Who for free so you don't have to pay for it. Or if you want us to stop, please send us your cold hard cash. Hi, my name's Rob. Hello, my name's Mark. And once again, welcome to another exciting, scintillating episode of 42 to Doomsday. Hooray. Hooray, indeed. It's a bit uh, quiet out there, isn't it, Mark? It's very quiet at the moment. Yes, our news, news page is only really two lines. It's uh, it's denuded of actual information. Mm. We will we will be talking about Stephen Moffat staying on for a second decade uh, as the showrunner. Before we do that, Mark, you've been to a convention. Yes, it was uh, the Hooniverse uh, convention up in the... Um... Is it Jeff's Shed? Jeff's Shed, that's it, yes. Uh, our former lamented great premier of this wonderful state. It was held at the uh, the plenary uh, which is a, a ra- large room which usually seats about 4,000 people but they shrunk it down to a, a nice and compact 1,000 seater. Did they use the master's tissue compression eliminator to shrink it Mark by any chance? I think they just closed the room and I don't think it was that special. <laughs> Did it feel like the walls were closing in on you at any stage? A bit of cabin fever amongst all the fans? Especially with a you know a couple of whiffs of odor de fan permeating through the room but um i i have heard that uh at, at conventions in america at least there's a lot of this con- convention fungus or something like that people come down with some sort of you know disease or diseases what the hell are they doing oh, they're just mingling with each other i think it's just the flu and it just goes through like a dose of salts and you can imagine <laughs> you can imagine just endless acres of fandom just vomiting into their buckets on their way home as a result but people go to gallifrey one is, does everybody have to wear like a hazmat suit or something <laughs> Well, you know, we, we don't want fans mingling the fluids, of course, do we? Back on topic, yes. Went to the Hooniverse uh, convention, yes. Who was in attendance, Mark? 11th Doctor himself, Matt Smith, Alex Kingston, and for the Melbourne leg of the tour, it was uh, Karen Gillan, where uh, I think for Sydney and maybe Brisbane, I think it was Freema Adjaman. Oh, and Perth, actually. Perth was... Uh, Freema Adjaman was uh, flown in as um, as backup, I think it was work commitments. And apparently the convention organisers allegedly received death threats because Karen Gillan wasn't going to a couple of those states. Get a grip. She's a beautiful woman and, and fandom in Australia, if nothing else, likes beautiful women. Not that Freema is unbeautiful. No. Just Karen is in a special category of her own, apparently. I'm a married man. I don't know what beauty means outside this house, frankly. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hello to my wife if she's actually listening, which she won't Won't be. be. So the audience was made up of uh, kids, uh, screaming fangirls, and quite a few of us middle-aged men. It's actually quite well organised. You know, you get your ticket, go and sit down in this big auditorium, and they come out and say, look, these are the rules. Don't engage your guests in any sort of banter. Don't hug them. Don't kiss them. Don't, you know invade their personal space so we all got told off about that that was fine what they did was they said okay vips and platinum members which i wasn't one of them go off and get your tokens and start lining up for autographs they just played doctor episodes while everybody was waiting waiting for what just it to start waiting for our time to go into the queues and and the autographs but uh they put this thing called hulock which was a fan-made uh youtube production of the 11th doctor meeting current incarnation of sherlock and of course the whole screaming fangirls erupted everywhere and i'm just going it's just a body youtube clip did you feel like you were at the at a one direction mosh mosh pit while that was happening or yeah i think it was actually yeah it was like oh you know yeah look it was very well organized but it really uh and it really just reinforced my view that the old style conventions are dead 
Uh, I remember we and I sort of helped run one in the early 90s and it was run for love really and not for profit mm. but I think those days are, are well and truly uh, gone. Uh, I mean Matt was charging I think $90 for a picture and about the same for an autograph. Karen and um, Alex were a little bit less. $90? Yes. That's, uh, for our UK listeners, that's 45 quid. The line was snaking out the door for him, and that's fair enough. Knowing a little bit about the tax laws in this country, I, I trust Matt's agent uh, signed him up correctly. That's all I can say. <laughs> well, I'm sure his business advisors will keep that in mind. <laughs> carry on, carry on. Matt's lady friend, Lily James, was there. And much to the amusement of me and a couple of my mates, including Rob Lloyd, we're all sitting there. And they said, Lily James is also going to be in attendance signing autographs. And I thought, oh, well, this smacks a bit of Gary Downey <laughs> signing <laughs> autographs at Doctor Who conventions in the 80s. So that would make Matt Smith J&T, is that correct? Well, I'm not going that far, but just, you know, she really had a very no connection. They basically said, look, if you're down to an Abbey fan or a Cinderella fan, come down and get your pictures signed. No, Mark, in, in, in one important way, she had a closer connection to Doctor Who than any one of us will ever have. I'm playing blue tonight, folks. Just carry on, Mark. Just carry on. Matt's Q&A was very entertaining. Ran for about 55 minutes. He dropped a couple of F-bombs. He looked a little bit under the weather, actually. I think hungover. Um... <laughs> <laughs> he is young. We we all forget that he's actually quite young. So you know, he did make a comment. He was at Crown Casino the night before, so mm. doing a bit of gambling. Do you think uh, he was putting it all on black on the roulette wheel? Maybe. Maybe the kids got to ask questions, which is great. A lot of kids dressed up as the Eleventh Doctor, so he engages uh, the children really well. Uh, Karen Gillan's and Alex Kingston's Q was okay. Um, wasn't as good as Matt, so... Did they talk about anything outside of Doctor Who? I mean, Karen Gillan is forging a career in Hollywood, uh, for instance. Did she mention anything about that? Talked about Guardians of the Galaxies, a few questions about that. Mm-hmm. A few questions regarding you know, acting styles and what they learn, are they still learning? So, yeah, it wasn't just basically, in an episode 33, what did you do? Mm. Which was okay. I mean, you did get a couple of those, and I didn't ask them, so that was all right. <laughs> while we're waiting for autographs, you know, they kept running uh, New Who episodes while we're all sitting there waiting. So, like, I've watched so much New Who in three hours and as I would in over a six-month period. So they, they showed 11th Hour, Doctor's Wife and Angels in Manhattan. So probably what I would have liked them to have done would have been uh, have a couple of panels with fans. Like to do at Gallifrey One, alternate programming. Instead of just having us all sitting in the room watching uh, Doctor Who videos like we used to do in the 80s yeah. in, in meetings, make it a bit more interactive. They did have a, some sort of attempt at a trivia contest where two 11-year-olds or 12-year-olds got beaten by like a 19 or 20-year-old. In your face, kitty! It was pretty much like that, which which is quite embarrassing. So I was throwing out answers like tractators and <laughs> trying to put off a ray game. Does Matt uh, Matt Smith? Do you get the sense that there's a bit of uh, distance now for him from the role, or is he uh, a, a bit more perspective, perhaps? On I get a feeling there's a bit of regret about giving it up. Was there a couple of comments, maybe? Or no, it was a couple of comments. I don't want to go. No, nothing that <laughs> nandy pandy. <laughs> Unlike John Pertwee, he took it like a man. <laughs> David Tennant. I don't want to go. <laughs> Yeah, sissy girly man. You got a sense that he was, uh, he might have liked to have stayed one more year. Sort of said he enjoyed, you know, working with Jenna Coleman and, you know, they've got a really good dynamic going and then, you know, had to basically go. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was a bit of, bit of sense of regret, I think, from his part. Of course, when the Q&A finished, I realised, oh, there was a question I wanted to ask him, but uh, I completely forgot. Did you get your photo taken with the great man, Mark? I got a photo taken with him and uh, I got his autograph because I got a picture of, um, you know, the 11th Doctor uh, images they use for the 50th anniversary celebrations. Let's just pretend I do know those images. Carry on. I'll send you a picture later oh, on. Nice. And basically, I've got Tom onwards signed. 
All I've got to get now is David Tennant and I'm done. Oh, nice. Now, I've actually seen a, a copy of that photo. You tower over Matt Smith. I hadn't realised that he was quite so short. Yeah, he's quite, he was fist bumping everybody. He didn't want to shake anybody's hand due to probably lurgies and, and fan fungus, yeah. wasn't it called? Uh, it was something like that. Understandable, understandable. It's, it's, ama- it's amazing he wasn't carried in in a hazmat suit. So Very open, very engaging, made you feel relaxed. Hey, dude, how are you going? And yeah, I sort of towered over him a little bit. Yeah. That's okay. That's right. You tower over most people, though, Mark, don't you? Though? I do, actually. Lurch, yeah. Yeah, it was just an interesting observation i think my time is gone in terms of fan conventions and and things like that i think uh, certainly it's now for the cash and not for the love i mean i don't even know who the organizers were for this for this one usually i mean obviously if it's a fan run thing you know the people behind the scenes but um if it's a a, a touring cavalcade of the capital cities of australia uh, get Mm -hmm. them in pump them out uh, you know the cream off the top of the the profits uh, oh well it's a business I mean you know exactly right it's a business could we argue that Doctor Who today exists to generate cash and not as an artistic endeavour or can we put a percentage on the artistic endeavour versus the cash I think it's more the cash isn't it like 70-30 really? yeah 70-30 is about right now the top gear's in the toilet um, what other TV series for the BBC is generating the cold hard lucre Call the Midwife <sighs> yeah maybe yeah maybe we t- look this yeah. it's probably <laughs> <laughs> It's not Downton Abbey. They passed on that, didn't they? Uh, well, they probably... Oh, they would have, I suppose. You'd think that they would be the go-to... Mm. Well, Lily... You could have asked Lily that, couldn't you? She's from Downton... She's a Downton Abbey. She wasn't taking any questions, just signing... She wasn't fist-bumping anyone? Or? Not that I saw. She was just sort of sitting there with a minder waiting for a queue of nobody to turn up. Did Matt have a minder or a bodyguard or something like that? Yeah, he did have bodyguards. What do we say bodyguards? Are we talking about shaven-headed blokes with bullet-shaped heads in black... Ex-mercenaries from South Africa, perhaps? or No, more like Osgood, I think. <laughs> Came back to become Matt Smith's minder. On that point, I saw a photo on Twitter uh, of Osgood wearing the McCoy jumper. Why? And it, it, it made me... Uh, I felt a bit acerbic after looking at that, thinking... So, Moffat is happy to have uh, characters in his series wearing the clothes of previous Doctors, yet he didn't want to have any actual past actors in the 50th anniversary uh, episode. Just made me slightly annoyed that he's not trolling the fans, but sort of if this, you know, if Osgood wearing um, versions of their uh, costumes is is, is is it's as if that's just good enough for us. I don't know. Are you happy that Osgood's coming back? I don't care to be honest. I never felt invested in her. There was nothing about uh, her character. You sort of this, you know, um, fangirl, Doctor Who fangirl. Um, that really made me sort of feel any emotion that the master, mistress, missy, whatever the thing is, killed her. Uh, no, mm. I didn't. And, and because there's the get out clause with the duplicate, uh, we all know that clearly it's the duplicate that's uh, that's coming back. You know, there's there's uh, it's the same sort of thing. No one ever de- seems to die permanently uh, in in New Doctor Who, uh, especially under 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 um, under Stephen Moffat, which is having your cake and eating it uh, squared. And it really annoys me that it just doesn't seem to be any finality to anything and it, it uh, yeah anyway it sort of devalues death doesn't it really in a way i mean it does i mean you saw you, you see um clara's boyfriend um danny yeah he died and then sort of come back and you know the brigadier dies and, and comes back and we oh. all know the doctor dies and comes back and unfortunately the paternoster gang won't die so you know <laughs> but if they did i'm sure they'd come back so yeah but you know what if they if osgood wasn't brought back in the new series big finish would have resuscitated her like they have with adric katrina and everybody else it's interesting the big finish is just inching closer and closer to you know grasping the holy grail of a new series license they're they're, they're getting they're, they're going to get there 
Hmm. They're going to get there, but uh, I mean, with the new unit series and and, and Kate Kate Stewart, so and Torchwood as well. They got their hands on that as well. Torchwood, yeah. I mean, that that's interesting. I'm, I'm not quite sure how you translate um, um, Captain Jack's uh, uh, <laughs> omnisexuality to the audio medium, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how that goes. I'm sure. Just imagine that, like a wow. <laughs> uh, now, just to just to go back, just to go back full circle. Um, so what's your, what what was your takeaway? I mean, did you enjoy the, the the convention? I did. There was a look. There was a lot of hanging around um, for things to happen, and it's basically you know a very quick Q and A. Look, it was longer than the Q and A of fifty five minutes was longer than some others I've been to where it's cut short after twenty minutes because they're running behind in terms of autographs mm. and photos. Uh, did I get a lot out of the day? Not really, because all I really went was to have a quick photo of Matt, get an autograph, sit around watching lots of New Who, and then went home. Because basically, at the end, they said, once you get your autograph and, and, and your picture, you're free to go. And that was it. Conventions should maybe do some alternate programming on, on you know, when instead of just punching people into a room watching videos. I could do that at home. We could have a convention at your place, Mark. We could, but we're not. Oh, okay. And just uh, just one final thing. You said before, I think, that the demographic was trending younger. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, very much. Lots of kids, you said. Lots of teenage girls. Is that right? Yeah. The new generation's coming through, and that's fine. I wonder if those teenage girls are watching with Capaldi now. They must be, surely. Yeah, I don't know. No, I mentioned Capaldi, of course. but No, not really. They're too busy screaming. On the other side of this music sting, uh, we'll talk about Stephen Moffat, won't we, Mark? So you don't have to. And welcome back from that music sting. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, is it going to be from um, Five Docs? I love the Five Doctors music you put in, Mark. That's lovely. I actually got a few people thanking uh, and tweeting about that. So something very, very brief to keep things you know, moving. Moving along? Allegedly. Because in this fallow period of news, we, we need to be moving along. Uh, otherwise, uh, we'll get caught up in something. At least I'm not doing DVD commentaries. Uh, yes. Actually, someone's talking about... Uh, there's a podcast out there talking about Dimensions in Time that came out yesterday. Oh really? I don't think they're doing. It. I don't think they're doing a commentary. I'll tell you about it off mic. So is Mike feeling a bit off tonight? <laughs> the stallion rides again. Is all I can say. I'm here all night. <laughs> now, Stephen Moffat, according to this uh, very, very, very brief article on Den of Geek, which uh, pinched it from uh, Blog to Who, who took it from Wales Online. Stephen Moffat has announced as a, in a by the by, I think in New York of all places, that he's staying on for. At least series 10. Wow. In celebration of this news, Mark, I have donned the Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> I, I think I think that's the most appropriate action that we can take at this time because, uh, would you agree? Would you agree? Absolutely. Wear it with pride. I mean, is it a case that Moffat has been persuaded to stay on? And is he delighted? <laughs> I think it's good for the BBC in terms of consistency, isn't it? Is it good for us? I don't know. Look, you know, season eight was, was great. Apart from yes. the, the finale, yes, he does pick some really good stories. I prefer some of the individual stories in Moffat's era as as opposed to RTD. But mm. I'm just not. We've we've gone about this all the time. I'm just not a fan of his finales and his arcs. I suppose taking over a showrunner would require a lot of you know run up to to to, to come up to speed. Mm. So the idea of shifting or changing showrunners as often as they seem to change the leads mm. uh, is probably untenable. Really, I mean this is an important series for the BBC. Mm. 
uh, in terms of its, you know, uh, its you know penetration, say, into other uh, foreign markets, as we saw with the tour last year with Capaldi and 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 Coleman and and Moffat tagging along on yeah. freebie. And you do want that consistency, I suppose. You do want that consistency of vision. And even though I've bagged uh, Moffat, and you know, uh, during you know episodes of the podcast, many many episodes of the podcast. I will grant you that Series 8 was uh, a real step up, I think, in quality, and, and, and we bag him. We must also praise Moffat that, um, that it was his vision uh, in, in, in concert with uh, Capaldi that uh, I think elevated the, uh, the level of the quality of, uh, of Series 8 over what had gone, gone before. So in that sense, it's, it's, it's good news that he's staying on if the trend continues uh, in an upward curve. Mm. Uh, but if he unfortunately, uh, if there's any backsliding, then um, perhaps this decision to stay on an extra year or two may be a, a bridge too far, perhaps. But um, I suppose we can only see. Uh, do Do you know anything about Series 9, for instance, Mark, who's, who's writing and who's directing and all, and all that sort of thing? I... I hardly know anything. In fact, I know nothing at all. I really haven't been keeping abreast of what's going on with it. I don't know whether that's due to just, just apathy on my part. I just couldn't be bothered. I'd rather just wait and see what happens. I'm just rather... I mean, all we know is the first two episodes is Missy, Osgood's back. Daleks? There's surely Daleks somewhere in there. Yeah, probably. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Cybermen. Oh, there's Cybermen, apparently. Spoilers for everyone, but apparently there's Cybermen, so... Let's keep trashing that uh, fantastic villain even more, shall we? I've decided to keep away from spoilers from a whole lot of things. I mean, I won't... I, you know, won't read reviews for movies. Uh, I, I won't chase down, you know magazine articles or anything like that for anything in particular that I'm hoping to watch. For instance, I went and saw Mad Max on the weekend. Great movie, people. Great movie. Wonderful movie. And I deliberately avoided reviews. I mean, I had newspapers with reviews and I just studiously ignored. It's in a world where you're drenched with information, you can't avoid it. Uh, you almost can't avoid it. You have to make that conscious effort to avoid uh, being spoiled or, or finding out about stuff and even finding about out about a particular writer might give you an indication of where they're going with the story. And these days, I just it's 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 a pleasure to be surprised. Yes, uh, and um, I, I I followed that route in, with series eight, and I knew very little about it, mm. uh, and I was I was surprised and uh, surprised and, and happy to be surprised. So uh, hopefully, the same thing again uh, this this year uh, when the series comes back. I avoid uh, Twitter when the episodes have aired, even like the other TV shows I watched, like The Flash had finished. I stayed away from Twitter. Because I wanted to be surprised, and I was. Um, have you watched The Flash? I've watched the first uh, f- uh, three or four episodes of The Flash. It's a, it's a lot of fun. I, th- I think the main takeaway is a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Not as po-faced as Smallville was. I, I did watch Smallville for a while. I stopped watching. It's got really up its own arsehole, to be honest. <laughs> but The Flash is a hell of a lot of fun and a really well-plotted-out season arc. Um, yep. where, you know, it has a few twists and turns and just keeps you, what's going on? Just keeps you on the edge of your seat and, and the resolution was, was very good. So that was actually a great surprise uh, to me, that show, because I sort of went in with low expectations. But mm. that's been one of the things I've been looking forward to watching more every week than what I have been Game of Thrones, which has been utterly boring this season, to be honest. I'm an early adopter of Game of Thrones. I bought the, the first book back in the mid-90s, so all you fan girls out there, nah. Um <laughs> Uh, but I haven't had a chance to watch uh, past episode one of the first series, but I, I've got them and I will watch it because I hear it's it's pretty good or very good. It is very good. It, it's funny with The Flash, um, Marvel uh, has stolen a march on, uh, on, on DC uh, with all the, you know, the Marvel comics universe or cinematic mm-hmm. universe uh, for the last 10 or so years. And, and I think people know very little about any DC comic uh, superheroes outside of Batman and Superman. And, and, and while the Flash is an iconic figure for you know people who've 
who love comics and have followed comics and the, the advent of the Flash presaged the, uh, the Silver Age of comics in the 50s and 60s. Uh, to see uh, uh, an unknown comic hero take to the sc uh, TV screen like this and, and do very well. It's very well received in the States. It rates very well. It's been, you know, it's got a new season uh, coming up later this year or early next year. Just interesting to see. And I, I think a lot of the twists and turns that people are experiencing and, and enjoying come from the fact that a lot of the people are, uh, or the characters that are appearing are, are relatively unknown. Mm. Uh, just to diverge, have you watched the Daredevil series? I've just finished watching series two of Arrow and I'm starting series three and I'll go on to Daredevil after that. Good, is it? Uh, yeah, I've, I'm about halfway through and um, it's 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 excellent. It really is. It uh, It's, well, it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's a cable series, I suppose, Netflix and uh, some of the uh, some of the breaks that are applied in terms of... Uh, uh, what you can do on television are removed as such uh, so it is mm. it is much more violent the language is there of course uh, but it's a very interesting and engaging story and, and, and knowing the character of Daredevil as I do because I used to read the comics back in the day and um, and where they've taken some of the storylines from some of the more iconic uh, comics it's 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 a very very good series and it'd be interesting to see how this first series turns out and where they take it and it's actually part of a, a, a bundle of uh, series that um, Netflix I think are coming uh, to do there'll be uh, two or three other series that are in production as we speak Iron Fist Jessica Jones which has got uh, David Tennant in it as the villain and uh, uh, someone Cage Luke Cage is the other series oh Luke Cage really it seems to be a bit of uh, overload isn't it on the big screen and the small screen look I suppose you, you make hay while the sun shines I mean at some time mm. in the future the, the comics bubble you would expect will burst but look, let's face facts. Age of Ultron cracked a billion dollars worldwide. Uh, there's money to be made out there, and while there were people who were go who were willing to engage, uh, they will. And I think that the mo the more interesting things in terms of comic adaptations are happening on television more than say the movies. The mm. movies will play it safer because they want to go for that more broader audience. You're not going to get a billion dollars uh, going for something very very dark and gritty and rated R or L or whatever the the top rating is around the world. But uh, on television, you can you can um, you can get away with more, which is which is surprising these days. But uh, considering where we've come from with ratings and TV ratings, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So Daredevil, that's my recommendation, and Mad Max. That's uh, that's a, that's just a wonderful movie. I was supposed to go and see that on the weekend, Ooh. but uh, I said to the wife, "Let's go and see Mad Max," and she goes, "No, I don't want to see it. I didn't like the first three, so I had to go and see a Royal Night Out instead." Really? Yep. Oh God, Mark. It was harmless enough. Really? Did it did it make you more or less of a Republican? <laughs> no. Okay. Let's move on. Uh, <laughs> let's, let's not talk about political views. Uh, I can't. I'm banned. So it was an okay film. Well cast. It's an engaging script. Look, it passed the time. It was fairly harmless. I watched the Theory of Everything the week before, and that was a great film as well. So the UK is pumping out some great quality um, films at the moment. So. I was happy to see that, but I'm going to see Mad Max tomorrow night instead. Wonderful. It's kinetic. It's hard-edged. It's it's actually just glorious. I mean, the cinematography, the uh, the action, the stunts are just top-notch. It's it's hard to believe that the the director, um, whose name escapes me, what's his name? George Miller? He's, he's 70, and uh, he hasn't directed an action flick in like 25 or 30 years. He's, he's come off Happy Feet 1 and 2 and Babe and... Uh, pig in the city so it for him to come back and and do this to put this together is nothing short of you know extraordinary and it's an extraordinary film it really is i mean i i don't want to you know pump the tires up on it too much and leave you feeling uh shortchanged when you watch it but it, it's just wonderful it really is a good movie and interestingly 
the focus is not necessarily on the character that you would expect. And the best thing about it, Rob, it's made in Australia. No, it's made in South Africa, uh, Namibia. Really? Apparently Broken Hill had, uh, it was in the middle of a drought and then before they started filming, it poured down with rain. So the, uh, the landscape went from orangey-brown to green. So they apparently relocated to Namibia. Um, and uh, I think some shots were done around Broken Hill, which is a, an isolated town in western New South Wales. Um, but uh, the, I think the bulk of it, I believe the bulk of it was done in uh, southern Africa. What was the country called again? Namibia. What continent? It's on the left-hand side of South... You know what music cue I'm going to drop in now, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Do you think Phil Morris went to Namibia? I don't know. You know what? I may have been saying Namibia for the last five minutes. And I probably pronounced the damn name wrong. Just uh, you, you fill in, Mark, while I uh, look up uh, the internet. Carry on. This is me tapping at my iPhone, folks. This is this is great quality uh, recording. Well, I'm going to see Mad Max four tomorrow night, so I am looking forward to it immensely. Um, what else have I been watching? I'm going to start Better Call Saul. It's supposed to be very good as well. The prequel to Breaking Bad. Just to interrupt, Namibia is indeed uh, the country I'm referring to. It's. Uh, west of Botswana and uh, in the northwest of where South Africa currently is. Anywhere near Joss? It is south of Joss, but there's probably about 15 countries in between it and uh, and, and uh, Nigeria. So Very good. Uh, there we go there. Just go scrolling through. Oh, this is great podcasting, I know, folks, but uh, I'll, I'll look at that up later. That's all right. Here we go. Formerly Southwest Africa is a country in southern Africa whose western border is the Atlantic Ocean. All right, enough of that. We've waffled enough. What else are we going to talk about tonight? Well, on the other end of this uh, musical sting, I can pick a theme up tonight. We're going to talk about... What are we going to do, Mark? In lieu of nothing else really happening, and to be honest, we didn't come up with a topic list for this uh, podcast, we thought a couple of episodes ago we did the return of our drag from the archives segment, and we had an extraordinary reaction of two listeners who uh, said that was great. We would like a full-length edition uh, drag from the archives, so in lieu of nothing else really going on, here it is. So welcome everyone to Drag from the Archives The movie The movie Just as, uh, as we discussed before This is where Mark and I get back in our Wayback Machines And through the miracle of the fanzine We, uh, we revisit uh, Fandom of Yore And in this instance as we did in a couple of episodes ago We looked at the beginning I think of the 1987 uh, season uh, that, that storied legendary season of uh, Time of the Rani, etc. Uh, and uh, with these fanzines, we're going to be progressing, I think, isn't that right, Mark, through 1987, the reaction of fandom, the <laughs> the uh, <laughs> apoplectic uh, <laughs> reaction of fandom, I think, is uh, is not over-gilding the lily on that one. The bile-venting <laughs> responses to uh, season 24, yes. Yes, yeah, so strap yourselves in, everybody. DWB is the gift that keeps on giving. It's just, it's, it's, it's wunderbar. We've also mixed it up as well with um, some Sonic Screwdriver magazine from that period as well. So without further ado, we'll start, shall we? So the first cab off the rank is from uh, Sonic Screwdriver 45. It says Pip and Jane versus JNT. Now, before you go on, Mark, that'll be a cage match I would have uh, paid to watch. <laughs> Little old Jane Baker. Being stomped by JNT. Hawaiian shirt wearing JNT rips it off in victory. <laughs> Waves it over a prone body and just uh, you know marches out. And his victory battle cry is, "I'm delighted." <laughs> They've persuaded me to stay on. <laughs> exactly. I'll be here for series ten. <laughs> 
No, no, we, we go too far, I think. We, we go, go too far. far. Okay, so I'll try that again. Uh, Pippin Jane versus JNT. I'm trying to compose myself now. Uh, continuing a trend that seems to have started with Eric Sayward, some would argue it started with Peter Davison. Two more people have left Doctor Who for good. Pippin Jane Baker, writers extraordinaire, have vowed never to write for the series again following a nasty dispute with Nathan Turner over the title of their latest story which introduces Sylvester McCoy. It appears that one of the Bakers wanted their story to be titled Strange Matter, but Nathan Turner argued strongly against this, wanting instead a title that would acknowledge the Rani in some way. In the end, the Bakers lost out. Time and the Rani, it is. With Nathan Turner mooted as producer of season 25 next year, who next will he offend? Will wonders never cease? I thought... It was actually more Carmel and the Bakers fell out than J&T. I think with the benefit of 25 years hindsight, it, uh, I mean, Carmel has said numerous times in numerous interviews that uh, there was never a meeting of minds between his ex- expectations of what the, the writers would bring and what uh, Pip and Jane brought to the series. So hmm. uh, that's come out. What 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 would have been a good alternative title to uh, Tom and the Rani? I would have gone with uh, it following J&T. Rani Matters. Perhaps. It's shite would have been another one. Strange Rani. Holding back the Rani. Strange Rani matters. On that page, actually, Mark, that you've scanned for me, there's a there's a wonderful photo of uh, Sylvester McCoy wearing Colin Baker's costume. Um, <laughs> it's it's it seems impossible, but it actually looks worse on McCoy. He's got this <laughs> just this grin on his face. He's wearing his glasses. It, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. It looked. It actually looked because he's so small, McCoy. It looks like the costume is attempting to devour him. He's just, he's, it's just, it's just, it's folds of fabric uh, drowning him, the poor man. So, but he's smiling. He's- the worst thing is about that photo mm. is that even in black and white, that costume still smacks you in the face. It is shocking, isn't it? It's just, uh, it's, it, there's, there's no sartorial elegance about it at all. It's just, um, it's a car crash, unfortunately. It's like, it's like watching one of those hot rods. You know, those have those hot rods. They have those car races. Yeah. And they're going down the straight, and then one of them just veers out of control, and it's just an explosion. There's smoke everywhere, and people running with their hands in the. It, that's what that costume evokes in me. It really is sad. It's like a weapon of mass destruction, isn't it? Really, you it could is. drop that on on an invading army somewhere, and they'd be completely blinded. If they had found that in Iraq, that alone <laughs> would have justified stringing uh, Saddam Hussein up. Imagine finding that in a bunker in Ramadi. That that's straight to the straight to the international court uh, in, in the Hague for for Hussein. But it would have been even worse if he had, uh, had all the uh, costumes of all the doctors. I'm a big fan. You can't string him up. Imagine if Hussein Saddam Hussein had had a Doctor Who museum. He was a collector of Doctor. Who memorabilia once again we're in the international criminal court of doctor who crimes and uh we should we should actually convene one of those one day in a podcast start banging your desk and saying we're convened bring the court to order no more missy objection sustained chunk of text here so just bear with me folks while i read through it and it's it begins i think this is the editorial in dwb 45 we'll go uh, it says uh, jnt the unparalleled breaker of doctor who records quote i wouldn't want to stay for more than three years unquote said john nathan turner on numerous occasions during and after his first year as producer of doctor who compare this with subsequent quotes he has given many years later for example quote i've broken all the records i've even outstayed tom unquote he boasted at a DWFCA festival in April 86. And the opening line of his section of W.H. Allen's Doctor Who file, published last September, quote, as I am now the longest serving producer, unquote. He seems to delight 
in continually informing people of his awesome reign and the fact that he has passed Barry Lett's previous record-breaking tenure, a mere five seasons, way back around the two Doctors. Besides being a dubious achievement for any ambitious producer to boast of, perhaps he should also be reminded of some of the other records he has broken as a direct result of his endless stint. Indeed, no one person ever connected with Doctor Who can claim to have broken as many records as Nathan Turner because, aside from the above, he is also the only producer ever, and then they break out into a a, uh, a list, a very long list. A list. It feels like a the prosecution's opening um, address to the jury here. I, I fear the judge may have already put on his black cap and he's ready just to pronounce <laughs> a sentence. Anyway, the first one: a to have the program cancelled and put on hiatus. You can't argue against that, can you, Mark? You can't. Let's just keep going on the list. B, to have produced four Doctors and cast three, albeit two by default, because Peter Davison allegedly quit prematurely and Colin Baker was sacked. Up to his arrival, there had only been four Doctors in 17 years of the series, and he has subsequently produced four, five counting Herndl, in his seven years in in office. C, to have his annual quota of episodes cut by almost 50% against his will. D, to be openly criticised for his work by his channel boss. Indeed, to our knowledge, Nathan Turner is the first and only producer ever to be openly criticised in this manner for producing substandard work. E, to have his script editor walk out on him in disgust. Have you seen how they spelt disgust? D-U-G-U-S, disgust. They're so disgusted, they've, they've misspelt disgust. They needed a script editor to fix that up. F, who insists in retaining the most consistently least inspiring writers and directors the show has ever seen. G, to have cast arguably the worst male and female companions ever in Adric and Mel Bush. H, to have spent nearly as much time producing the show on jumbo jets touring and froing across the Atlantic on ego trips. Uh, I, to have (laughs) bastardised the images of so many once popular Doctor Who creations. The Master, Cybermen, Omega, Silurians and Sea Devils, etc. J, to have whisked the production team away on gratuitous trips abroad. I'm, I'm getting a bizarre <laughs> parallels here, <laughs> Mark. Oh, to... oh my God. <laughs> oh, I'm getting hot uh, flushes. Keep going. K, <laughs> not to admit any of his mistakes and step down, <laughs> but instead appears to take great joy in implementing <laughs> them still further while a once-loved British <laughs> institution slides even further down the slippery slope of obscurity. It ends. <laughs> this, this, this is great. <laughs> Nathan Turner, we deplore you for what you have done to our show and the willful disregard for the fine reputation built up over 18 years by your predecessors. All it lacks at the very end is boo hiss. Wow. That, um... Missive. That's, that's, that's gold. That is... Now, this is in, this is in the face, obviously, of the reaction to season, uh, 24. Yeah. 24, so... Uh, DWB loved this. They just this was just money for jam for them, wasn't it, Mark? Some of this could be, you know, uh, uh, as we sort of mentioned before, applied now. Whisk the production team away. <laughs> oh, gratuitous trips abroad. Um, he mentions uh, much time producing the show on jumbo jets, tipping and throwing across the Atlantic for ego trips. Well, bastardizing. Well, you know, we talk about Missy, and it hasn't been a decent Cyberman story since her shock. So they they say history doesn't necessarily repeat, but it, it rhymes. But um, 
Of course, we only jest, don't we, Mark? We only jest. But I just like the line where they say, fine reputation built up over 18 years by your predecessors. Yet they were happy to hang Graham Williams out to dry and the vitriol poured on him when J&T you know, took over and you know, J&T was a messiah. Hard to believe. I suppose it's interesting. I mean, these fanzines, uh, fanzines like DWB were probably attempting to carry favour to get themselves uh, in with the with the right crowd and, you know, giving J&T favourable coverage at the expense of... Um... Oh, Graham Williams. Yeah, Graham Williams, sorry. Yeah, it, interesting that they would, uh, they would uh, big him up initially early anyway at the expense of uh, Graham Williams, so... Oh, well, the worm does turn, I suppose. Here's another one. Uh, same page. The curtain coming down fast on JNT Circus. The casting of Ken Dodd confirms the so-called cynic's fears that the series has been treated as a light entertainment show with JNT parading his glitzy circus of comedians, dancers and pop stars on a now virtually defunct audience who used to tune in for the excellent acting and dramatic values Doctor Who was once proud of before his defenders once more shout that we should wait to see how Dodd performs. That is not the point. It is the principle behind JNT's warped view of what constitutes dramatic Doctor Who that counts. Can anyone seriously claim either Beryl Reed, Lee John, Faith Brown, John's, Joan Sims, <laughs> said John Sims, or Bonnie Langford, to name a few, have done anything to enhance the credibility of the series? It is now a laughing stock exclamation mark. On that point, was it... Who were the who were the people who were thinking that the credibility of the series was being diminished by these uh, having these actors cast? Was it the audience, the general audience, or was it the fans who were um, the same fans in the same circles uh, muttering to each other, "This is terrible! This is terrible!" Yeah, I think it was the fans. Just the fans. I mean, because the audience couldn't give two hoots. You would you would assume. No. Look, I mean, Beryl Reed was uh, miscast, personally. I mean, you can understand what they were going for. I mean, in a fairly male-heavy cast and a very sort of action-oriented male, mm. a male you know, led story, uh, having a female in that role was probably the way to go for contrast. Beryl Reed is the wrong actress to have in that uh, role. Exactly. And even Joan Sims, I think, in it was, uh, it was the wrong actress to have in that role. I suppose... He thought having those stars in Doctor Who was to get bums on seats, but not nobody really cared. But the ratings never really justified that. Um, no. That, that, that approach. Uh, I, it, it just J&T seemed to think that, um, well, that's the whole light entertainment tag that he copped, that um, you know, he was mm. more interested in, in, in uh, generating publicity than actually generating good stories or good storylines. And, uh, you know, we, you can argue the toss all day long, but... Um, uh, despite his approach, there, there were you know a reasonable run of good stories during the eighties, uh, you know, on and off, on and off. I know on the uh, Davison retrospective, uh, come in number five, Moffat says, because they talk about you know the casting of Beryl Reed and 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 such, and Moffat says uh, along the lines of, you know, I would get Bruce Forsyth in a heartbeat on a series, but the role has got to be specifically um, written mm. for for him or a character like him. You can't just put. Beryl Reed as a, as a, as a hard-bitten um, Ripley-type character yeah. on a space freighter. It just doesn't work. No, it detracts from what you're attempting to achieve. That's right. Yeah. So what's next on the list, Rob? So next up, Mark, is uh, from the letter column of DWB45. 45, here we go. Uh, young Anne Levine from Acton, London. I wonder if Anne still lives in Acton. Where is Acton, Mark? You know London better than me. That's where the Acton Hilton used to be, where they used to rehearse Doctor Who before it got uh, cancelled and then uh, knocked down, yeah. Oh, that's sad. Ian writes, So Nathan Turner has finally got around to casting Ken Dodd in Doctor Who, and Bonnie Langford is still miscast in it, and Nick Mallett is directing again this season. 
Remember, remembering his last travesty was lit like a Les Dorshan show. And Chris Clough is directing again. Remembering his terror-inspiring vervoids. And Pip and Jane Baker have turned in another script for the new season, which, judging by their past efforts, will be vying between The Twin Dilemma and Time Lash for all-time classic. Ha! Please pardon me for not having orgasms of delight in anticipation of September. I think I should force myself into becoming an A-Team fan. It was pretty on the mark there about... Um, all of it? All, all of it, but also, you know, it'd be tying between Twin Dilemma and Time Lash for all-time classics. Stinkers, aren't they? And sadly is, is fandom's Cassandra, you know, the, the prophet in the wilderness, or the prophet basically who, who, whose pronouncements are ignored. Yeah, uh, and derided, and um, yeah, well, you know, he was—he uh, had his—he he had a view, and uh, in this instance here, was as you say, he was right, wasn't he? But I don't know whether he actually became a fan of the A Team. That's for sure. Did you ever watch the A Team? Oh yeah, I watched the A Team when I was a kid. But um, you know, we all did that. We all did those sort of things when we were young. Yeah, it wasn't on a Saturday night over here, so we were no. we were able to watch it. It was on commercial telly, wasn't it, from Channel Nine or something like that? Yeah, commercial telly. Yeah, what nine or ten? One of them. Yeah. I mean, I could look it up on the iPhone, but uh, I won't waste your time. So, <laughs> they used to get locked up in a in a concrete room with nothing in it, all of a sudden burst out with a tank. You know, uh, well, okay. it's like MacGyver. Just... It was just bizarre. <laughs> There's a tank made out of um, uh, a sardine can and a couple of uh, ball bearings. Yeah, exactly. All of a sudden, okay. it comes out the Sherman tank. Oh well, you know, Fantastic. miniaturization. The Japanese in their miniaturization, mate. It's, it's wonderful. wonderful. It's brilliant, isn't it? Yeah, it is. is. Alright, so the next one is DWB48. It it says 5.1 million and falling. Episode 1 of Time and the Rani was seen by uh, 5.1 million people, placing it at number 70 in the top 100. However, a million or 20% of viewers deserted the story by episode 2 with only 4,200,000 tuning in, putting the show at number 85. Over the same period, Coronation Street on Monday night actually increased its audience by about 1 million beating Wednesday's episode, which is usually seen by more people. Commenting on open air about the 5.1 mil, uh, rating, JNT said, Our figure for the first week was 5.1 million. It does show that there is still a support for the program in that time slot. Do you like my JNT impression? It's, it's almost as good as your Tom Baker. Ah. A statement read by Jonathan Powell was then read out on air concerning the new time slot. Jonathan Powell, I quote, We don't invest good money in a season. <laughs> Sorry. What does he sound like a German commandant? <laughs> oh, but go it. with that, Mark. Go with that. Yeah, uh, it'll try. be between you and the lawyers, but go with that. <laughs> no, better not. We don't invest good money in a series just to throw it away. We think it provides complimentary entertainment, particularly for younger members of the audience who tend not to watch Coronation Street. What is he babbling about? Guess what their bloody parents do, and they've got one set at home, they're only going to watch Coronation Street, aren't they? What is Powell babbling about? That's just PR speak, isn't it? Complimentary entertainment? That, that's just PR guff. Spin. And opposite that, uh, that column, there's a picture of Sophie Aldred, a young Sophie Aldred, looking just stunned, basically. It says Ace meets the fans. I would, too, I too would be stunned. Yeah, she's got a mouth gawping, going, "What have I got myself into?" What was that question he asked? What he asked? What? What? Poor thing. So moving on. Um, look, we all know that Doctor Who was thrown to the wolves back then, I suppose, uh, and it was seen as what a way of sapping viewers away from Coronation Street. I don't know. You know, maybe they had nothing else to put up against, and they didn't want to. They thought that they didn't want to. Uh, throw you know an example of good television to the wolves with coronation street rampaging on the other on the other channel at the same time so yeah hard to say 
No, not hard to say. It's very easy to say. They didn't like Doctor Who, and they just wanted to, you know, kill it basically. And this is the quickest way to do it. They did. They didn't have the balls. They didn't have the uh, testicular fortitude to, uh, you know, pull the trigger, uh, drop the hammer, uh, and uh, any other sort of cliche to get rid of the series. I mean, you know, just do it. Just do it. So, Mark, we move on to DWB forty-eight. Um, the uh, the the <laughs> what can I say? The bile is rising. Uh, this one is uh, headed Davison Labels Today's Doctor Who, a variety show in space. John Nathan Turner's style of production has once more come under attack, this time from the guest stars and experienced television makers who attended Dwoss's Panopticon 8. It is probably just as well Nathan Turner failed to put in an appearance since virtually nobody, including the actors or puppets who have worked <laughs> under him, had a kind word to say about the current all-time low standard of the program. Most panels contain guests who, obviously still great fans of the program, are deeply concerned about the developments of the last few years, some of which are also touched upon in the main Panopticon 8 report in the centre pages uh, of this issue, obviously. Mm -hmm. Such is the extent to which this ill feeling has spread that even two Nathan Turner cast doctors found it difficult to hide their obvious dissatisfaction. Colin Baker, still primarily a staunch supporter of J&T, nonetheless was clearly bitter in his belief that he would have been more successful had he been allowed to place his own interpretation on the role of the Sixth Doctor rather than the character influenced by Nathan Turner, a sentiment echoed by any rationally minded person. <laughs> his feelings towards Doctor Who today was best answered when he announced he did not tune into Episode 1, preferring Coronation Street instead. However, Peter Davison had seen the previous Monday's episode and he was not impressed with what he saw. While he concedes that Sylvester McCoy could be an excellent Doctor, when freed, no doubt, by Nathan Turner's hindrance. He feels that the show built around McCoy leaves a great deal to be desired, coming across as, to quote, a variety show in space. Being such an ambitious actor constantly involved in different projects, it is easy to understand Davison's bewilderment that Nathan Turner is still there. So, mm. yes. Any of that is a true uh, Account accounting what of, yeah. of what happened then. Mm. It, it Look, you know, I mean, if the, if the, if the negativity from, you know, you know, hardcore fans had spread to people who were allegedly spread to people who were involved in or previously involved in the production. Mm. It does say a lot, doesn't it? I mean, obviously, uh, Davison is coming from the opinion that he, he just doesn't understand why Nathan Turner is still producing the show. Why hasn't he moved on? Yeah. And Baker, from what you read there at that time, was probably beginning to create the narrative around, well, you know, if I had been given a chance to... Um, portray the, the Doctor as I'd wanted to, perhaps my tenure would have been longer and more successful. Hmm. And, and and Nathan Turner cops it in the neck as a result. Um, I mean, and, and, and rightly so, in a sense. I mean, the, whoever's in charge has to take responsibility at the end of the day. Isn't that right? That's right. But at the end of the day, though, J&T didn't want to be there. You know, he was forced to make season 24. None of that washes with me. None of the, you, no? you can't be forced to do anything. If he had resigned, I reckon there would have been nothing. Although it would have been better than what we got. Yeah. <laughs> Well, initially, anyway. It's it's nice... I mean, if you were feeling generous to J&T, mm. you could say that he, you know, he sacrificed his career to keep Doctor Who on television. Yeah. I don't think you could say that of Nathan Turner, that he would sacrifice his career simply for a TV show that he worked on. Mm. Um, how can you be compelled to stay on? I don't understand. I mean, no one compels me to stay on in my work. No one compels you to stay on in your own work. True. We've got bills to pay and mortgages to pay, but Nathan Turner wasn't a you know a poor man. You know he was he was well off and he was doing well out of the show. But no one compelled him to stay on. I don't think that argument can wash personally. Nathan Turner was a BBC man through and through. And after they you know publicly humiliated him in terms of cancelling his show and slagging him off public and keeping him on the same job 
uh, that he's supposed to do doing a bad job of. And look, I'm not trying to defend him. I'm just trying to put a different lens on it. Look, he said in interviews, I, I was I was forced to do it. There was no choice. I was told I had to do it. So effectively, JNT was uh, for JNT Doctor Who was his safety net. That he he he, he did he liked the gumption to go out there. And, uh, and and forge a career for himself. I mean, did he secretly know that he really had, outside of the BBC and outside of Doctor Who, no hope of any serious television career after that? I think once the show was cancelled, I think his career was already gone. But even before that, I mean, he had, he, he missed he, he, no, he missed his opportunity to get out on top. Oh yeah, he missed it well and truly. We know, I mean, in, in all walks of life, uh, the opportunity to go out uh, at the top of your game mm-hmm. uh, is a, is afforded to a select few, and we saw that this week. Just to go by the by, uh, uh, one of the premier coaches over the last thirty years in Australian rules football was sacked uh, by his club. Um, and, uh, we, we, you know, those of us who, who followed it for a long, long time know that very few coaches are, are allowed to leave on their own terms under their own steam with uh, being carried out the door by people who love them. Mm. But, you know, uh, JNT should have gone with Dave, Davison. I mean, it's, mm. I mean that's, there's nothing more clear than that. He should have gone with Davison and, and he would be regarded in the same breath as... It couldn't be any worse than, say, Williams, for instance, and he probably would have been... Um, as good as uh, regarded as probably as well as as Letts and uh, Barry Letts. Even if JNT had produced stayed and produced Twin Dilemma, then left, people would have would say, "Oh, look, you know, Twin Dilemma was a blip. Okay, we we can forgive you, I suppose." But because um, he kept on going, and then <laughs> and the show got cancelled, and yeah, but the 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 these attacks on on JNT aren't just happening now in 1987. DWB made its <laughs> made its name by by knifing him from from about 1984. Hmm. 1984. So this has been going on for a number of years. So yeah, but it was a lot more subtle then. This is this is near hysteria, isn't it? Oh yeah, no. I mean, th- this is this is completely over the top. This is completely yeah. over the top. Everything we're reading out now, yes, yeah. with the benefit of you know, with 30 years later, it's hilarious. Hmm. But it it's it's you get the feeling that if you were st- it's the same thing as standing out in the street and 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 listening to a person who sadly is is insane shrieking at the moon. You know, a lot of this is just is just you know someone ranting and raving in in, in public, um, yeah. with all due respect to Gary Lee. All right, so that's um that's DWB forty eight where Davison says a variety show in space. Uh, Sonic Screwdriver forty seven. Now, for those who don't know, Sonic Screwdriver is the organ of the Doctor Who Club of Victoria. The best state in Australia. Yes, best state in Australia. All the other ones can just go bugger off. They've got their merits as well. No, they don't. Moving on. Okay, so this is uh, from the Deep Thoughts section of the of the publication, which is where people used to write letters in. Remember those? Rob used to send letters off to fanzines. and. I used to have pen pals. Friends who I'd write letters to. I had pen pals. We used to uh, swap tapes, though. My pen friends used to send me bits and pieces, like I got, uh, you know, the Ultimate Adventure play with John Pertwee. I got a great big... Uh, poster of that, a daybill poster of that, uh, and I got it signed by the great man himself. So you should uh, have those framed, mate, and put them up in your office. I've got one of Capaldi framed in my office. Really? Yeah. I was in that office not so long ago. I missed that. Where was it? It was right in front of the door. Really? No, <laughs> you walk in, it's, it's there with signs <laughs> with arrows pointing down, saying, "I've got Peter Capaldi's autograph." Really? Yeah. yeah. I'll send you a picture later on. Oh, thank you very much. Thank anyway, you. so back to this. Starts off with our next correspondent is the first of three to evaluate the 24th season. Despite the fact of it not having been officially, in quotes, screened in this country, looks like the video sheiks are at it again. They have, they have torrenting in the 80s, did they? No, it was called 747 Jumbo Jets. Um... Laden with VHS tapes? Well, I'll swap you some Tom Baker repeats uh, if you send us over season 24. 
<laughs> and he sees season 24, so can the taste back, please? <laughs> Still, it is good to see what Australians, rather than the British DWM slash DWB writers, think about season 24. So this uh, letter is by uh, David McKinley. Uh, hello, David, if you're listening. Hello, David. Are you still living in Greensboro, David, I wonder? <laughs> yeah, I Just up the road from me, Greensboro, more or less. Might go for a drive tonight and knock on that door. Because <laughs> for me. some reason, they'd actually printed their addresses in the letter, in the letters column. They used to print the addresses in, and uh, I remember uh, I had a letter put, uh, printed in there. It had my address in it. And all of a sudden, I started getting phone calls from random people um, asking me, have you got this story? And I'd say, yes. I have, and just hang up. <laughs> anyway, so it starts off with a quote. His promises were, as he was then mighty, but his performance, as he was, is now nothing, from uh, Hamlet mm. by William E. Shakespeare. <laughs> it starts off, Watching Destiny of the Daleks, recently I was surprised how good it looked compared to the 24 series offering. It is one sad duty to report that the new season is catastrophically awful. Not even Kate O'Mara can save Tom and the Rani, a story that has more padding than Kate's shoulders. But wait until you get to see Delta and the Bannerman. It is not Doctor Who, it's more like a cross between Hitchhiker's Guide and Happy Days. This one plums the depths, folks. Horns of Nymont is award-winning material next to Bannerman. What is it about JNT that permits him to inflict this dross upon all of us? Is the man a fool? Or does he consider the fans and public fools? The spirit of the series has evaporated, and at a time when it seemed to be on the men, Trialf had its flaws, but it was on the right path. It had something of the much-talked-about magic of Doctor Who, a custom more honoured in the breach than the observance these days. Instead, JNT has proved to be lately a master of the glib and oily art. Season 24 is all surface, no depth, gloss and padding, rather than anything substantial. It's pretty pictures with a soap mentality behind the dialogue. Like a snowflake, the stories melt away with close inspection. Can there be clearer evidence that a change of direction is needed? It must now be doubted that the series can survive past next season. One must try to be hopeful. Only a short time ago we had some delightful stories and a good doctor. Who, like Leah, was more sinned against rather than sinning? It already appears that JNT is to impersonate a Doctor Who producer for another season. The Silver Jubilee season and for one which may well be tarnished due to it being the last one. If it were done, then tis done. Then twere well, it were done quickly. That's very uh, that's very poetic there from young uh, David McKinley. Yeah, some good insights though. There. Uh, I remember when I got the tape of Paradise Towers, I was watching it with my mouth uh, <laughs> open wide. And I actually uh, I watched it and said, oh my God, okay. And when the, the it got screened in Australia in 1988. I just happened to have it on and uh, mum and dad were watching it and they said, this is awful. And I said, yeah, you're right. And I went over and just turned it off. That's the first time I've actually ever turned off Doctor Who. It's interesting that uh, David says that uh, the series, uh, the Troll of the Time Lord series, appeared to be a turning point for the series that it was sort of clawing its way back to being good uh, yeah. or being on the right path. Mm. Um, really, season 20... 22 is is really a uh, the show's at a crossroads there isn't it it um, it seems like it became a lightning rod for lots of fan disaffection certainly DWB's disaffections with the series and of course the show being cancelled slash suspended at that time doesn't help its reputation but um, it's interesting that he says the trial um, is the show returning to it you know returning to its roots or coming back to onto the right path uh, and then taking a step backwards, or several step backwards, with uh, season twenty, um, season twenty 
four. Yeah. Did you? I mean, you were watching it. And you, you obviously you just said before that it was it was terrible. Did you? Did you feel? You know, as a, as a viewer, did you feel betrayed? Did you feel confused? Did you feel angry? What did, what feeling other than uh, horror? You know, did it evoke in you? Because it was all shot on videotape, and it just looked so cheap and tacky. And growing up like Tom Baker, all the way, you know, all the way through to to what was what I was seeing then currently mm. and I just couldn't relate to it I just thought this is as a kid show it's terrible but why was that so different to anything else that had been shot on videotape before I mean I know you know you got you, during the 70s it was a mixture of video and film mm. but I mean the video far far outweighed uh, the film I suppose you, you could argue well, you, the answer to that would be that the stories were better the film gave it a slightly more glossy look in some, in some mm. instances it just looked overlit Cheap and tacky. Look, and even, you know, Sylvester McCoy didn't really know what to do with the character, mm. at least till Dragonfire. It's just all over the shop. And look, I watched it when it came out on DVD uh, a few years ago. I mm-hmm. can't even remember when it came out. But I was, I never, I didn't go buy that out straight away. I actually waited till it was like $12 and then went and bought it and mm. watched it. And I thought, you know what? Uh, the concept's actually pretty good. It's just the execution. And you know, another classic example of miscasting was Richard Bryars. You know, at the end of it, it was just lurching towards infamy, wasn't it, really? The sad irony of all that is that for a director, sorry, for a producer who was uh, so entranced by the visual look of the series, you know, the, you know, the companions and Doctor wearing a uniform and uh, and all that sort of thing, that the, the visual, the visual um, expression of the stories was so bad uh, in the, in that uh, in that particular s- uh, season, isn't it? Yeah. We move on to well, possibly the greatest. Uh, Headline to and headline to that point. DWB forty nine, the November nineteen eighty seven issue, goes down in uh, in fan history. I think it, it, it may be forgotten, but uh, for those of us who were there at the time and, and read the read the issue, it uh, it was a knife through the heart. Really, uh, I'll begin. I'll begin. On November twenty two, Anne Levine, the world's leading authority on Doctor Who, will appear on the BBC's Did You See program, outlining the reasons. For Doctor Who's astonishing decline in recent years, from the dramatic ratings-winning institution to its present-day unpopular pantomime-esque counterpart, in a final desperate bid to restore Doctor Who's credibility for its 25th anniversary next year, we are launching this campaign through the nation's press, asking them to help us highlight the real reason for the program's failing and to bring pressure on the BBC to finally remedy the situation. Sylvester McCoy is the least of the show's problems. Rather, it is the program constructed around him by a hopelessly inadequate producer that is sounding the series' death knell, as Ian Levine explains more thoroughly in the following article. In a survey last year, 99% of readers of this Doctor Who fan magazine, (laughs) 99%, expressed a desire to see a new, imaginative producer employed on the show. At every convention, ex-production crew expressed their intense dissatisfaction at the direction the series has since taken. And the abysmal audience ratings of four to five million speaks for itself. The time has come to take action because, and this is the uh, the bit in large type, the fans, the public, the professionals all unanimously agree. JNT must go now. Byline by Ian Levine. And then all of the front cover, and then uh, some of page three where it jumps to, is devoted to... Possibly a couple of thousand words of why uh, JNT must go by the man JNT favoured in a lot of ways by allowing yes. him to become the unofficial continuity advisor by you know producing a, a script that he uh, apparently co-wrote 
by allowing him access to the gallery, by allowing him access to the actors, by allowing him to do many, many, many things that the ordinary fan would never dream of doing. And Levine, for whatever reason, uh, <laughs> well, we know the reasons, but he, he came to this point where he wrote this. And it might even be worth reproducing this on the blog, Mark, um, for people who actually want to have a look at these two pages. But uh, Three pages, isn't it? Three pages. It is a savaging of epic proportions, really, when you think about it. That was the start of the Operation Who, wasn't it? To yes. try and uh, unseat JNT via the National Press, who really couldn't give a sh- stuff. Well, I'll, I'll give you a flavour. I'll give you a flavour. I mean, I suppose, you know, pulling... Uh, random bits out is unrepresentative but I don't think these words are very unrepresentative of Levine's attitude at that point and I quote well the first adventure Time and the Rani must rank as one of the very worst Doctor Who stories ever in my opinion it was inanely disgustingly and appallingly written by the most talentless pair of hacks ever inflicted on the series Pip and Jane Baker should have been laid to rest after the dreadful terror of the Voivoids last year or better still the equally contrived Mark of the Rani in 1985 Any producer worth his salt would have immediately seen how unsuited to Doctor Who they were, but no. John Nathan Turner, charmed by their nauseating and tedious sycophantic purrings at Doctor Who conventions, or rather than the scriptural attributes they possessed, decided to repay their undying loyalty resulting in them writing a total mockery of the final episode of The Trial of the Time Lord. Uh, There's more of that um, in spades, basically. This is is, is Ian Levine... uh, (laughs) Unplugged, basically. In Pip and Jane Baker's defence for Trial of the Time Lord, the episode, the original episode was pulled. Uh, they had six days or something to write a replacement. Mm. It was the best they could do. But when you're on a, on a propaganda hunt or run like this, you're not, you're not going to worry about facts. No. And 99% of how many readers? What, four? What was the print run? Maybe a thousand? Uh, maybe a couple of thousand, yeah. yeah. But again, you're appealing to the hardcore of fans who are, who are gravitating towards the, 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 the fanzine's approach. The edit, yeah. no, no one who read DWB could be uh, ignorant of the, the, uh, the editorial approach that the, the, the fanzine had been taking for a number of years. No. So, I mean, no. anyone who didn't want to know about it was obviously not reading it. So anyone who was voting <laughs> shared at least some or if not all of the views of the editor himself I just remember DWM's rebuttal of this was like a limp wet lettuce very wishy-washy response they didn't want to get involved in all this but they tried to defend him uh, I suppose because he was their um, advisor wasn't he at the time I wonder what DWB would make of Doctor Who now over the last 10 years that list that we read out early on would probably be being uh, attributed Back to Moffat. I don't know. But, I mean, the, the rebuttal to, to that approach now would be to say that the show has never been, you know, more popular uh, on, uh, on as, and on as broad a scale. That's right. I mean, this is basically outlining declining audiences, bad production values, bad stories, where nowadays we're getting... Incompetent producer. Com- yeah, exactly. Where now, these days, he's a good producer in many ways. Uh, production mm-hmm. values are fantastic. Mm-hmm. Stories are engaging for the most part. Uh, well cast as well. We've never had it so good. We've never had it so good. They can't exist because there'll be nothing to bitch about. That's what they've got podcasts for, really, isn't it? <laughs> well, that's what they got me for, apparently. So exactly. How's that? Let me just pound the desk one more time just to make that point. On DWB forty nine, there's a uh, a plea to keep JNT as far away from Doctor Who the movie as possible. 
There is no doubt that news of the imminent Doctor Who the movie has produced a spark in the flickering dying embers of today's Doctor Who. And whilst one assumes that lessons from the 60s Dalek movies will have been learned, the prospect of J&T acting as the film's creative consultant is just too awful to contemplate. Hasn't the man already done enough to destroy the popularity of the concept on the small screen without wanting to curse what little chance it has left of restoring its credibility on the big screen. No doubt he will proclaim that it was always his idea to translate Doctor Who to this medium. He should be kept away from any involvement with this new project if it is to stand any chance of success. Stick to what you're best at, John, your annual Christmas pantos! Exclamation mark. But doesn't this ex- exemplify the tabloid approach the DWB took? That it, it spun a story out of nothing? Yeah. Was there any indication that J&T would ever be considered as some sort of consultant on any sort of Hollywood movie adaptation of the series at that time? I reckon he would have been. Because remember the um, Ultimate Adventure play? He was a consultant for that. So he might, they might have got him in as a consultant on the film. But a pantomime that's made on you know five pounds and change is, is a little bit different to... A multi-million-dollar sci-fi extravaganza, uh, you know, produced out of Hollywood. Um, if anything, they might have asked him to come over and serve the tea, but um, I, I, I doubt very much that he would have been that creative consultant. But um, I mean, it, it, but it does go to show that there was no stone left unturned in the box of outrage against uh, uh, J and T. Really, Doctor Who, the bloody movie. God, that went off rages, didn't it? Really? Oh. Mm. I remember. I, I used to remember reading. Um, English newspapers had come out here, you know, the tabloids, and uh, they would be talking about, um, you know, this actor was has been linked to it, and that actor has been linked to it, and it was just, it was just fodder for, you know, filling column inches in newspapers in 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 the UK. There's a book about uh, what's it called? It was the Nth Doctor? It's called Now on the Big Screen by Charles Norton. Uh, outlines the Doctor Who movie and the many scripts it had. I was just going to say, I think I have a copy of one of those movie scripts in a box somewhere. Huh. I, I purchased a copy. I'll never, I'll never have that money back again. That's all I can say. That Doctor Who movie went on for for years and years and years, and you know, I remember mm. we all got excited seeing a very small picture of the new logo, and I think there was a couple of images of uh, creatures that had been uh, created. I think just the heads of them, and I think that's as far as I got. And um, remember when the TV movie was about to come out, or the announced production? Apparently, in the in the contract for the movie. If they had to, I think it was like they had so many years to do it, and if they actually mm-hmm. started filming on the on the movie before a certain date, it would it'd still be within that time frame. And I remember there was rumours going around that they actually that they'd met Leonard Nimoy to um, to direct it, and that was nice. in the early '90s. But yeah, basically just lost a whole lot of cash, and that was it. That was it. Burnt that money big time. Waste of time in the rainy. <laughs> there you go. I just thought of that now. There you go. You've, that's, that's a beautiful segue there, mate. A beautiful link. Beautiful link. Uh, now, from the pages of uh, Sonic Screwdriver issue 48, that perennial fan obsession, and let's be frank, my obsession, <laughs> missing episodes return. Now, next to a picture from Fury of the Deep of Patrick Troughton applying a stethoscope to a pipe, uh, while Victoria looks on uh, in curiosity, the words, missing episodes return. However, even brighter is the announcement that further missing Doctor Who episodes have been recovered by the BBC, along with many items of footage spanning many stories from the hartnell Troughton era. This find couldn't have been better time considering the Doctor Who documentary being planned later in the year. As to the episodes found, talk about burying the lead, <laughs> at this stage, it seems the Beeb have recovered Marco Polo episode 2, The Singing Sands, The Highlanders episodes 2 and 4, the Web of Fear episode 2 and Fury from the Deep episodes 5 and 6. 
There are more episodes, but it is not known at this stage what they are. Ooh, Shades of the Omni Rumor. Mm. Unfortunately, none of the episodes recovered complete any of season four to five. Sorry. Unfortunately, none of the episodes recovered complete any season four or five stories, but with the way things have been going lately with recovering lost episodes, it may just be a matter of time. More news next issue. Sounds like more confection next issue than anything else. Can you remember when you where you were when you heard the news about those episodes being returned and what were your, what was your reaction when you saw them? <laughs> My reaction was simply to roll over in bed and go, what a terrible nightmare that was. <laughs> and the author is uh, P. Morris, Esquire, age 10. <laughs> but it, look, you know, it just goes to show that the Omni Rumor is merely the latest in a long chain of rumours that have gripped fandom about missing episodes. And at this time... You know, about 83, 84, 85, DWB in particular was on a, um, a bit of a run with, uh, with being linked to uh, missing episodes or announcing missing episodes, Evil of the Daleks 2 uh, and, and some other episodes mm. as well that had been returned. So uh, it's no surprise that, you know, any, any hint of the possibility that episodes had been found, particularly some of these ones that are mentioned here, would, uh, would get top billing on, uh, on fanzines. And of course... Um, the eager readers who were hanging around for episode uh, issue uh, the next issue uh, you probably had to wait was it one two or three months to find out I think, that, I think uh, it was yeah <laughs> that their dreams were sadly uh, dashed. I don't think it was ever mentioned ever again oh dear but on that same page is the exciting news it says confirmed 27 that doesn't mean there's 27 missing episodes being returned, but anyway. In other exciting news is BBC Enterprise's announcement that season 26 and 27 will definitely be going ahead, with no threat of the axe hanging over its head. With JNT leaving at the end of season 25, the future of Doctor Who looks very bright indeed. A famous last words, Rob. I don't think you can find more errors in t- in two sentences than those two sentences. First off, what is BBC Enterprises doing making any sort of announcement? <laughs> Series 27. No no threat of an axe. JNT leaving at season 25. And of course, the killer line, the future of Doctor Who looks very bright indeed. Yes. Um, that is that is just one mistake from, you know, go to woe, that particular set of paragraphs. But season 27 was confirmed about 25 years later when Big Finish resuscitated it, didn't it? <laughs> All right. Uh, what have we got left to look at there, Mark? DWB 52. JNT has shaved off his famous beard and in a complete change of style has also had his hair cut short and slicked back. The big question is who is he trying to hide from? No opportunity to stick the knife in is ever squandered with this. He's uh, had a haircut. Had a shave. Oh, dear. It even gets better on DWB 52. It says, Bonnie find. Bonnie Langford was fined £40 on October the 1st for speeding on her way to rehearsals. And in brackets it says speeding, as in driving too fast. Close brackets. <laughs> oh, Jesus. They didn't, did they? <laughs> they didn't go there. <laughs> this keeps getting better. So it says Pippin Jane Kong. In summing up its review of Time and the Rani, the Daily Expressed, oh, very clever, likened the script writers to a remedial class of chimps, adding... You'd almost think the BBC wanted to get rid of the good doctor. Well, what, what can you say? So, uh, from the pages of DW53 now, um, they've obviously gotten over their uh, Ian Levine-inspired rant, uh, comes up, uh, headline, Season 25 Hots Up. So they talk about uh, Remembrance, uh, and then they talk about The Greatest Show on the Galaxy. Then they talk about this uh, talk about Malapath. Now, obviously, Mark, we, we all know that that, that uh, great story, Malapath. Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, uh, it says here, written by newcomer Graham Curry, it is not yet known whether Anthony Anley will be recreating the role of the Master. 
To overcome a visual problem posed by the script, parts of the episode 2 will contain animated sequences believed to be similar in realisation to the computer animated sequence seen at the start of season 24 and onto which Sylvester McCoy will be CSO'd. Um, <laughs> I don't remember any of that, Mark. <laughs> it would have been Underworld all over again, wouldn't it, really? Well, exactly. Yeah. And, and then the article fi- uh, finishes out with Nemesis. John Nathan Turner's final story is current, currently being unofficially billed as the anniversary story. As you will probably have guessed by now, this is the story in which the Cybermen return, again by a newcomer called Kevin Clark. In addition, we can reveal that two past companions will also be appearing, namely the Brigadier and Tegan, alias Nicholas Courtney and Janet Fielding, helping to see J&T go out with a bang. Script editor Andrew Cartmel, however, is reportedly very unhappy at Nathan Turner's insistence of the inclusion of so many old monsters and characters this season. What? <laughs> what? Well, well, they're making this up, aren't they? Surely to God, they're making this well, up. Well, Nicholas Courtney was in Silver Nemesis. Was yeah, he? Yeah, he was. Oh, he, he was. was yeah, he was. Yes, that's he was. Right. That's but right. uh, Janet Fielding wasn't there. Um, it said script editor Andrew Carmel is unhappy. Uh, well, that line could have also said the same thing about Eric Say was unhappy about uh, inclusion of many old monsters and characters. Ian Levine was very unhappy. I mean, you know, you just add, add that to anyone's name. and just. I just noticed in the Greater Show um, uh, blurb there, it goes, it does not feature an old foe, although it does see the return of Stratford Fort to Doomsday Johns, who plays the ringmaster. Um, no, he didn't. The part was played by a rapper, if I remember. You couldn't get anyone di- more different than the fellow that they actually hired. Where'd they pull that one from? Their ass, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> DWB. Gift the on <laughs> exactly right. So as an antidote to the DWB uh, ranting, uh, we've got this uh, letter to Sonic Screwdriver from issue 50. Now, Sean Brady, um, whose address we won't read out, even though he no longer lives there, I'm sure, he writes... Uh, someone else clearly does, unless they bulldoze the house. <laughs> I am becoming increasingly annoyed with the behaviour and attitudes of what I hope is a minority of fans, especially those in the UK. After reading an article in a recent edition of DWM concerning the action of fans such as Ian Levine and Jeremy Bentham towards John Nathan Turner and the direction the series is taking, I was appalled to read of them threatening to picket the BBC and arouse media interest in order to get the BBC to sack JNT. As much as I dislike some of JNT's changes to the show, I hardly think a public campaign to get the man sacked is something to cheer. He is a man doing a job, just like anyone else, and is not the sole creative force in the show. A public lynching is what these aforementioned fans really want, but I think the publicity they are attracting is proving detrimental to the program and how the general public sees it. I suspect the public sees these people as mindless fanatics and lumped all of us fans into the same boat, so to speak. It's okay to be an admirer of anything, but when that admiration turns to one-eyed obsession, it starts to become a little dangerous, I feel. Doctor Who is a television show that we, the fans, happen to like. I think it is wrong to view it as some kind of pseudo-religion. It is when some kind of perfect icon that it starts acting to the detriment of the show. Mm. I'd like to finish by saying that I don't think JNT has set out to destroy the show as some fans tend to think. I've heard some people talk about him as though he's the master. In fact, he has done a great deal of good for the program in my eyes. Peter Davison and Colin Baker were inspired choices for the lead role, and the amount of publicity he's generated for the program can't be a bad thing. He seems to care for the show. He seems to care for the show as much as we do, and cannot be faulted for that. In short, we should remember some of the good he has done for the show, and some of us should remember all this next time we try to publicly crucify a figure such as JNT. Wise words there. Eh? I mean, that's a valid, a valid approach by Sean. There. I mean, it's um, it's easy for anyone to be caught up in the in, in the rush and the hysteria and the uh, and the bombast, and you. 
that sort of approach tends to turn you know flesh and blood people into caricatures mm. and caricatures are, are probably easy are easier to attack um, and what Sean here is saying that no, everyone needs to take a breath and, and take a step back and realize that the show is just a show and that the people you are criticizing are you know are, are people just like the rest of us and don't necessarily deserve it let's close out with uh, movie news hots up this is from mm. DWB uh, 52. And it says, Coast to Coast, in conversation with John Peel at a convention in, in New York, confirmed they are looking to budget 5 million quid for the proposed Doctor Who, the movie, for the special effects alone. And the management revealed they have shortlisted among their list of actors to play the screen doctor, the popular stage and screen actor, Tom Conti. Negotiations are currently in discussion with BBC Enterprises over the structure and format of the film. And formal announcement of the film's realisation is expecting to be made within the next few months that didn't happen this i mean we've discussed this before but this is a real obsession with uh, fans and fandom and, and and dwb at that time um it looked it i suppose in hindsight did it actually look like it was ever going to happen it was realistically going to happen do we think a tv a movie at that point? i think in the late 80s was definitely um it was on the horizon more you know when the show was still in production but once that stopped, mm. I think it was gone. And on the same page, I'll just close this one out. I'm, I'm, uh, Sylvester McCoy on the likelihood of a Seven Doctors anniversary story. Uh, I quote Sylvester. We might get together in the higher echelons of the, of the Who office. They are talking about it at this very moment. Mm. Yeah. Seven Doctors anniversary story. Dimensions in time. Yes. Well, see, we didn't miss out really in the end at all. Did no, we? not really. Just quickly, Mark, before we close, uh, wrap it up tonight... Um, the, the, we've discussed the idea of a movie sort of briefly before. Do do we think that they're going to do a movie with Doctor Who? I mean, we know we... Well, actually, we discussed that, I think, an episode or two back. You know, where Moffat basically kiboshed and said, no, wait eight years and, and come back. Um, I don't want him to do a movie. I'm quite happy with its TV incarnation. I'm happy for the occasional special we put on the, on the big screen, but I'm not a big fan of having a standalone movie and separate continuity or Peter Capaldi in, in the movie. The show will suffer. It'll say, look, we've got to go on hiatus for two years or something while we make it. And I think mm. at the moment the show's too pop. Why stop the momentum? On the flip side of that, if the show's so popular, why not capitalise on, on that popularity, that worldwide popular, popularity now by bringing to the screen, to the big screen, a blockbuster, you know, spend the, I mean, they reportedly spent, say, $150 million on Mad Max. I mean, if you're looking at a big actioner like that, uh, you probably have to spend something in the in the same neighborhood for Doctor Who. Mm. Capitalize on that interest, capitalize on that fervor. I mean, you know, it, it would create a, a massive buzz around the world in the lead up to it and when it, uh, and when it's screened. I mean, I take your point that it might take out the, um, you know, the, the, the TV series might suffer. You know, all the momentum that it's built up may stall if they stop producing it for TV while they concentrate on the movie. But, um, I mean, I, I think that if, if they did go to a movie, I don't think that Capaldi would be the lead. I think they might wait for... Either they do a parallel continuity with a new, just a new actor or the next person to come along, the next, hopefully, male lead uh, <laughs> comes along. Have I just invited controversy there? I think Moffat has talked about uh, of the possibility of a female lead in the in the future. Uh, put the kibosh on that, uh, Steve. Let's just don't do it. Okay, just don't do it. So that was dragged from the archives. Uh, the movie we've no doubt got a, a pile of fanzines uh, six or seven feet tall uh, that we can uh, pillage and plunder. So we'll come back to that uh, in the near future. But now on to our letters section. 
You've got mail. So the first letter we have here is from Billy Kirkbright, who says, Hi, Mark and Rob. At last, I've had time to catch up with a few of your episodes due to the long drive from Geraldton to Perth to attend Hooniverse. I particularly enjoyed your episode on the uh, look at the Peter Davison era. That's a four-hour drive. Yeah, West Australia is a big state. Glad you enjoyed it, Billy. Personally, by the time the early part of this era was on our screens, my interest in Doctor Who had started to wane. I figured Doctor Who had become quite removed from the show I'd grown to love back in the early to mid-70s. Even in the documentary The Doctors, in the words of Sean Sutton, after the Pertwee and Baker era, some of the magic of the program had gone. I agree, and found much of the late Baker, early Davison era quite a feat of endurance to watch. Then came Origin Undead, with its heavy continuity uh, content, particularly the flashback sequence when the Brig had lost his memory and the Doctor mentioned aspects of the history together. A wonderful and nostalgic moment in Doctor Who. And I dare say Warriors of the Deep, not to the Pertwee era, with its poor production and Ingrid Pitt doing some semblance of a dance while attacking the Merka, not to mention the five Doctors and so on. It's at this point and here on in, further stories that my interest in Doctor Who started to reignite again. While the heavy continuity of the Davison era is often criticised by fans and critics, it's an aspect that I love and am thankful for. It is this factor that got me watching the greatest television show in the world once more, right up to its cancellation in December 1989. It's this that brought me back to a realisation that this was indeed Doctor Who. I love it when the show acknowledges its history. Also to mention, I began to grow fond of the Fifth Doctor with his youthfulness and lack of overly eccentric mannerisms that was so evident with Tom Baker. It's Hooniverse here in Perth, and oh, I'm looking forward to it. Keep up the good work, guys. Billy. Thanks, Billy. Thank you, Billy. Now, Mark, you're Welsh. Uh, how do you actually pronounce Mordrin? Mordrin. <laughs> really? Yeah. Oh, that's a bit boring. Underwhelming. I'm underwhelmed by that. Yeah, Is you're doing a, me a din. Mordrin means dead, doesn't it? Yes. So dead undead. Dead undead. That's, a silly title. Anyway, we have a letter here from David uh, from Ringwood. David is a regular contributor. Hello, David. Dear Mark and Rob, as I flip the page, great audio there, folks. Thanks for another great episode. Of the nine underrated New Who episodes, seven of them I've not watched again since first broadcast. So off the back of your suggestions, I'll be giving a few of them a second try. But not Lazarus Experiment, though. Sorry, Rob, it's awful. Sidebar, um, yeah, I actually tend to agree. <laughs> Do you want to go back and re-edit that uh, podcast no, on the no, face? it's out there. People, I, I stand and fall by my commentary, Mark. Uh, often fall, but anyway. Now, my, mm. Dave goes on. As requested, here's my list of uh, top five underrated episodes. I found this list hard to compile, as in many cases, I'm not sure enough dust has settled for us to really know what fandom rates and underrates, especially for the uh, Matt Smith era. But here we go. One, The Long Game. Yes, it's a straightforward story squeezed between Dalek and Father's Day, but I really enjoy it. Adam is an interesting character, and I'd love to have seen a few more episodes of him, and the plot holds together well with Simon Pegg as the lead. 2. The Idiot's Lantern Certainly what J&T would have called an oddball story, I think this is an example of the individual characters raising a simple plot above its level, especially the relationship between Tommy and his father. Plus, at this stage of Season 2, did anyone not want Rose silenced for an episode? Too true, Dave, too Mm. true. Too true. Fair point. Seriously, fair point. School Reunion. It amazes me that this story seems to be forgotten, but with Liz Sladen and Anthony Stewart head in there, it should be on the list of classics. In addition, I think this is one of the best tenant performances before he settled into his more exotable persona for the rest of his run. Perhaps that is why fans of the era underrate it. Uh, the Satan Pit. Of all my list, this is probably the one that gets the most positive attention, but still seems to be forgotten as a double episode that doesn't contain a classic monster. Matthew Jones wrote one of my favourite Virgin New Adventures, and here balances character and action brilliantly. Although I confess, I'm still not 100% sure what happened in the end. 
turn left. Another example of an episode in the shadow of bigger stories around it, RTD proves his ability to deliver proper drama well. The undertones as British society collapses, as well as the ending, were nicely underplayed, a rarity for new Who. Uh, I'll also make a prediction. When the dust settles on the Capaldi era, both Kill the Moon and Forest of the Night will be considered underrated, as although the central plot conceit in both is bollocks, the story around these conceits are pretty good. Yours, Dave. Uh, the Satan Pit is, does seem to be forgotten these days, doesn't it, Mark? I mean, I know there was a lot of hubbub about it at the time, um, but yeah, it does, doesn't you don't seem to hear much talk about it as a, at all. And I think it's a it's a great pair of uh, episodes. It is. When I chose my stories, I I deliberately didn't choose any that that were in the top twenty or the top ten of what the DWM poll did. Mm-hmm. So I mean, look, I would have definitely plumped for um, for Satan Pit and Possible Planet. Yeah, absolutely. School reunion, though. I think if it didn't contain Liz Sladen and, and Sarah Jane character, would have been a very average episode. I think it is a very average episode, populated with a very average monster. Um, it, it, I think it's Dave's right. I think it's the performances of Tennant and Head and Sladen and Sladen that elevate it. Mm. I, I'm struck sometimes looking at it. There's there just seems to be a mixture of different elements. There's the sort of darker element, and there's the lighter element, and you know, with the school kids and all that sort of thing. And I don't, and some of the pranks that happens, I don't think it necessarily meshes very well. Um, but when it's good, it's a good episode. It just feels a little, I also feel that it, it seems a bit unnatural to see uh, Liz Sladen in an episode of New Who. I, I, I don't know. I'm, I, I think I'm just so used to watching her uh, from the 70s that to see her in this glossy production just seems, it strikes me as a odd it just feels odd it just feels odd what about her and uh, sarah jane adventures oh no i never i never watched any of that i don't know i can't i can't comment on that so well, i mean obviously you've you've listened you've watched sorry yeah I watched it it was a great oh, show yeah that was actually more more invoking of classic who than uh, the new series ever did you should go and have a look at the episode death of the doctor that's a big continuity nostalgia oh, okay. fest with uh, Katie Manning, and you should go and check that out. I will, I will. Thank you very much, Dave, for that. And finally, uh, John Davies from Melbourne, who I think was the first president of the Doctor Who Club of Victoria, so hello, John, who put a post on our underutilised Facebook page. Uh, He said, listening to your new Who underrated top five episode, I take note of you reading out of the 10th Planet episode four recovery hoax from late 1980s Sonic Screwdriver magazine, and the name of the hoax of being uh, Roger Keith Barrett. The name was derived from none other than Sid Barrett, the original singer, songwriter, and guitarist of 1967-era Pink Floyd. Check out their debut album, The Piper at the Gates of Dawn, from that year. Sid was Barrett's nickname, which became his stage name. The hoaxer evidently traded on the fact that Barrett would have been a largely unknown figure to most people, except for Pink Floyd aficionados, such as myself, who owns their entire discography, including Barrett's two solo albums of 1970. Thank you, John, for that. John and I traded a few uh, Facebook posts where he mentioned that um, uh, my dad's uh, 45 vinyl single of uh, See Emily Play with the original picture sleeve in, uh, intact is worth a pretty penny. Really? I'll let my dad know. That's his retirement paid for. Now, before we go, I checked our Facebook page the other day and we've been stuck at 161 likes, it seems, for months. Do we do we have a Facebook page, Mark? It's at the end of the credits. Oh yes, uh, who's? Oh, that's me. Sorry, yes, that's right. If you feel so inclined, if you can just give us a couple of likes on our Facebook page, just to bump us up to over 200, 250, that'd be absolutely uh, splendid. A challenge to our listeners: get us up to 200, 250 uh, in the next month, and you know, we'll just keep on pumping out more episodes as a reward for free. On that score, 
Surely some of the listeners out there have an iTunes account. Apparently it's a big site, a few things happen on it. If people could just, would give us a, a review, just a nice review even, you know, it doesn't have to be a great review, but just a review on iTunes. Apparently that bumps us up. I don't know how the algorithm works. Who does? But doing that and along with Facebook will get us, you know, maybe a few more people will listen to us. We always like to get ourselves out there amongst the public, the great, you know, unwashed. And, uh, oh, sorry, the great washed, really. And uh, it would be nice to, uh, to, to hear some more comments um, from our listeners because, uh, uh, you know, yeah. we, we know you listen. We, we've seen the download numbers and they're, they're nice and healthy. But uh, it'd be nice to hear a few comments from people about what they think about the show, what thoughts they have about, you know, for the show and uh, any, any ideas uh, about what we can do and, and how we can improve if it's required. And if you like us, like us. We should get out of here, Mark. So um, in the background, I can hear Hawaiian music being played. I can hear someone screaming as he's, you know, being dragged away. Um, I, I, I don't want to go. I want to stay. I'm being persuaded to stay. If we're delighted, series ten in a vaguely Scottish accent. No, no, no. We can't go there. We can't go. There. <laughs> Good. Do a panto next. <laughs> can you imagine a panto done by Stephen Moffat? How would that be? Sherlock on stage. How's that panto? Well, actually, um, they did do uh, stage adaptations of. Uh, of Sherlock Holmes when um, when uh, Doyle was still alive in the early teens of the first decade of the last century. So And didn't Tom Baker play Sherlock Holmes and Moriarty on stage as well? Well, Baker did the, the Hand of the Baskervilles. Did he do it on stage as well? I believe so. Oh, we'll have to check it up on... Talked about conventions at the beginning of the podcast. Do you hear about that uh, BBC Sherlock convention they, uh, they ran in the UK? And I think VIP tickets where you got to meet uh, Cumberbatch and co. was about £3,000. Cumberbatch is a bona fide... A Hollywood actor now. His his time is precious. Actually, speaking of Hollywood, I when I went and saw um, uh, Mad Max, they, the trailer for uh, Terminator Genesis came up, and we all know that Matt Smith's in it. Do you think I could see Matt Smith in the trailer? No. Nowhere to be seen. And the other thing about that trailer, I sat there thinking, this movie is either inspired brilliance or inspired lunacy, because I think I know what they're doing. <laughs> and it's just, that's as crazy as a... Well, that's the proverbial. That's our emergency podcast out of the way there, I think, Mark. We'll be back on track in the next couple of weeks, hopefully. Hopefully. We uh, we have a, a treat, I think, in store for our listeners uh, once we get um, it all signed off on. Would that be right, Mark? Yes. I uh, can't say any more, unfortunately. Got a couple of uh, more guests lined up in a couple of weeks' time. As the great man used to say, stay tuned. Stay tuned indeed. So I've been Rob. And I've been Mark. We'll speak again soon. You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon.